You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 74 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are discussing South America. We've done a few location episodes. Mm-hmm. We did Australia and Antarctica. This is our third continent. Yeah. And what a continent to choose. Oh my gosh, there's so much. <laughs> but I'm excited because this one has lots of weird stuff, lots of weird fossil stuff, and it's an awesome continent today as far as life is considered. And so we'll be going through, we're going to talk a little bit about what is southern america uh <laughs> we, what is what it does it encompass today and what is it known for but then we're going to look at how has it changed throughout time what are some of its notable animals where how has it moved around you know on the planet uh with a focus on the weird mammals because one of our requests was specifically for that because this episode was requested oh by whom by one our patron nils thanks nils and Shaylee. Hey, thanks, Shaylee. Who asked us to talk about weird South American males. Which we've done a little bit. Yes. We talked about sloths, mm-hmm. episode 24. But now, as as always, a view of South America from space. Yes, because <laughs> I, so many, probably more times than I've had in other episodes, did I keep coming to sections and being like, putting the notes together and then have just having to step back and go, you know what? Someday someone can ask for an episode on this section. Yep. Because I just can't. <laughs> I can think of several of those off the top of my head. There's so many cool things. <laughs> so that's the plan for the episode. But first, some announcements. As usual, at least so far it's been the usual, we like to shout out the names of certain patrons on our Patreon. Because if you sign up at a certain level, we'll announce you. Like this. Welcome Rosa and Tawny. Welcome, friends. Yeah, thanks for signing up on Patreon. Welcome to the Baskin Coil. <laughs> I guess we're all, we haven't officially defined what the Baskin Coil, I guess it, it's, I imagine that it's just everyone who listens. That's, yeah, that's always, that's how I've often used it, is just everyone. Listeners. Yeah. The community. You're li- if you're listening now, this, you're worshiping right now. <laughs> <laughs> you just get the official welcome this way. And then the only other bit of announcement we have is that currently... Up on our social medias, we have the a questionnaire up for you for our end of year Q and A. Yeah, we got a bunch of questions already as of this recording. Yeah, so keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter, and we'll link it in the description for the episode. Click the link; it'll take you to a Google form. Ask us any questions you have. Last year's Q and A was like two and a half hours long. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I'm sure it won't be. Yeah, much more than that this time. This one will last through January. (laughs) (laughs) Keep us busy. And that's it for announcements. You know, short, short announcements this time. So that leads us right into the news. News. So every episode, as many of you know, we like to gather up some of the recent paleo evolutionary newses that have hit the interwebs and present them to you like this one coming up. Hey, that's me. That's my cue. <laughs> the will my that's my, my co-host, master of segways. I've I'm never gonna, ridden one. 
I'm going to start <laughs> with the news, oh, this guy, about a really intriguing fossil ape. Cool. That is a new species, always cool, and has some intriguing uh, hints about the evolution of bipedality. Ooh. Ooh. Hey, this is research by Madeline Bohm et al. in Nature, so you know it's... Uh, Notable. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll link to a little little tongue in cheek jabs at nature for all the sciencey folks out there, and we'll link to a popular article in Cosmos by Natalie Parletta. The Miocene epoch, big deal time for apes, as we've discussed uh, here and there in the past, episode seven, uh, and then anytime we have Ali on, yeah, we talk a little bit about Miocene apes. This particular new species is from around 11 million years ago in Bavaria in Germany, and it has been named Danuvius guggenmosai. It's notable, one, for being a different type of ape, always cool, two, for being preserved fairly well. Cool. The researchers identified at least four individuals, including, and this this I think is really cool, one male, two females, and one juvenile. And what's fun about that is that you get a whole sequence. We it's a get, nice variety. It is. Yeah, it's a good overview of the, the species, perhaps. <laughs> this variety is the spice of stati- statistical data. <laughs> yes, it is. The male in particular is very complete, including many parts of the body, uh, particularly notable limb joints, which are especially useful when trying to interpret locomotion. Overall... The researchers uh, mention that the body proportions are similar to bonobos. Bonobos? Somebody out there yell at me. (laughs) I don't know. I Uh, I always forget that there's... Yeah. So you can picture... So if you don't know bonobos, they're like really nice chimps. (laughs) (laughs) Polite, chill. They're they're chimps that have been through therapy. They're hippie chimps. Yeah. They're They're very hippie chimps. But the most interesting thing about this new research on this new ape is the way its body appears to be adapted for moving. As we discussed extensively in episode 18, there is this big old question around how bipedality evolved in our lineage. The the habit of walking on two limbs. Lots of primates today move in lots of different ways. You've got your knuckle walkers and you're swinging your brachiators through the trees. You've got monkeys that sort of are arboreal quadrupeds, that they walk on all fours through the branches. Yeah. Which of these locomotor styles predates true bipedality is an interesting and open question. Perhaps answered in part by Danuvius. The authors note that its arms, for example, are rather long. The joints around the elbow and hand appear to be very flexible, which are traits that we see in climbing primates. Okay. So it looks from the arms that it was a good climber. The legs and the hip, so the hip and knee joints, indicate a more upright posture, and the ankle joints are very, uh, they were described as stable, so sturdy and strongly built lower leg bones are traits that we see in more upright bipedal walkers. Hmm. So it appears to maybe have been doing both. 
They also note that it has a grasping big toe. Lucky. So maybe, so even its toes, even though it has this more upright posture, still grasping, maybe they point out for walking on branches like some modern monkeys do. So they describe a new type of locomotor behavior that they describe as extended limb clambering. Basically, tree swinging and walking. Huh. Possibly up in the trees. So so Disney Tarzan. So Disney Tarzan. <laughs> they note that this, this body shape seems to combine adaptations for both bipedal movement and suspensory, so swinging and climbing adaptations. And might be a, a potential predecessor of true bipedality. Interesting. That is a that is a very unique amalgamation of traits. It's always interesting to me what traits do show up early in a in a behavior or a, a you know style of survival and what traits don't go away in the order you might think. Like right, still right. having grasping toes is something that you think would be one of the first things to start getting sidelined as soon as you start walking walking upright at all. But the fact that they still have them is really intriguing. Yeah, the way they describe it makes it seem as though, if they're right, this lineage of apes became bipedal while still in the trees, at least in part. I would... You are using a more upright posture in while still climbing. I like that idea a lot, especially just because, you know, the the history behind bipedality, it has always been a big question and somewhat mystery, and at least in the the initial sparking of it but also why has mm -hmm. been a big why did we start doing it and you know grasslands have so often been pointed to as the reason why is so that we could walk around over the grass and right, be, right. No, uh, be nomadic but if being bipedal in the tree was useful there might not be any reason for that grassland catalyst to have happened yeah that's really interesting now People who paid attention to episode 18 will no doubt be thinking, but this ape that we're describing is several million years older than the earliest bipedal hominins, right? Our earliest, like Australopithecines and such. Mm -hmm. So this might not be the exact line that our particular ancestors took. This is a very early apparent adaptation for walking on two legs. So... It could be that our even earlier ancestors were already kind of inclined to two-legged walking even before, right? This is before the chimp-human split. Yes. So maybe there were even more ancient apes that had a more upright posture. It's also notable that all living apes today are capable of some bipedal mm -hmm. locomotion. So it it may not be all that surprising that walking on two legs is something that has shown up early and perhaps uh, more in more diverse circumstances than we may originally ha have realized. Neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, my bit of news has to do with a pliosaur. Hey, we talked about those. We sure did back in that other episode, 72 or something. <laughs> that was discovered in a cornfield in Poland. This is not a particularly unusual pliosaur, but it does indicate some things about that area. 
Hey, what's a pliosaur? Pliosaurs are those big four-flippered aquatic reptiles swam the oceans during the Mesozoic, during the time of the dinosaurs. Long crocodile-esque face, short neck, same group as the long-necked plesiosaurs. Yes, not to be confused with the two large-flippered, long-tailed mosasaurs from episode 51. Yes, or the four-flippered but powerful-tailed long-nosed ichthyosaurs, which we haven't talked about yet. From episode something in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, from, from episode 97. Yes. <laughs> I'm putting it the bet down now. Someone's going to hold us to that. I, I make no promises. <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. Yeah, right. So we'll see you in September. <laughs> this research is by Daniel Tyborowski and Bojayowski. And this is in the Proceedings of the Geologist Association. Cool. The article we'll be linking to is by Mindy Weisberger in Life Science. So this fossil was found, as I said, in a cornfield in a Polish village in uh, the mountainous region of Poland. This is significant because up until this, Jurassic pliosaurs were not usually found in many European countries and had not been found in Poland. Oh, that's fun. Until this one. So yeah, the first Polish uh, pliosaur. From the Jurassic. From the Jurassic. And this is also interesting because of what was found with that pliosaur. There is a few other marine fossils, some uh, crocodilian cousins, some ancient turtles, and some of the long-necked plesiosaurs. Ah, So it wasn't just this one big one. Fun. Episodes 260 and 72. (laughs) Now, this is a sizable pliosaur, it seems. The cone-shaped teeth they found and fragments of the upper and lower jaw uh, had some teeth that reached up to three inches long. Ooh. So this is a sizable uh, individual, at least, and was dated to somewhere between 145 and 163 million years old. The reason this site was notable past just having a cool big pliosaur is that the variety of Jurassic fossils, these crocs, turtles, and plesiosaur pliosaurs, indicate that this was likely some sort of, as the article put it, hub where marine habitats were overlapping. Oh. Yeah, because these individuals don't necessarily, or these these species and the, these animals don't necessarily overlap at all times. So going back to the Jurassic, this uh, these mountains would have been an archipelago, you know, a grouping of islands surrounded by, as they said, warm lagoons. And the reason this seems to have been some sort of overlap is because the Turtles and croc relatives typically are known from more Mediterranean sites, so warmer waters that would have been in the Tethys Ocean, the ocean that was between Gondwana and Laurasia, the two major continents at that time, while pliosaurs and plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs were more common in cooler, more northern waters. So this seems to indicate that there was some mixture, some intermediate where all of these were able to mix in and become fossilized in nowadays Poland. Interesting. Yeah, so seems to be an interesting site. They're hoping to find more in, in future uh, uh, excavations. It's always fun when you find the first of a thing in a new place because it's not surprising when that is 
also indica- indicative of a type of environment you haven't seen before. Yeah. Or some type of preservational state or time. So, yeah, that Poland, who knows what treasures are waiting in Poland. It'd be so cool for them to pull out more weird marine stuff. Well, that's fun. Hey, speaking of interesting news fossil sites, my next bit of news is about a site in Colorado, here in North America, that preserves a stretch of time cataloging ecosystems immediately after the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Cool time to preserve. It is indeed. This is research by Tyler. Now, here's the thing. So I await, so I know two people who know this man named Tyler. <laughs> and one of them says Tyler Lyson, and the other one says Tyler Leeson. And the second one tells me that Tyler has told him that it's Leeson. So Tyler Leeson at all in science. If we've mentioned Tyler before and I've mispronounced the name, I apologize. <laughs> Tyler Leeson et al. in Science, and it's in Science, so you know it's... Science. Notable. And we'll link to an article in the New York Times by Nicholas St. Fleur. The fossil site is Corral Bluffs in Colorado. The area includes numerous localities with lots and lots of fossils. In a stratigraphic sequence, that is a swath of time that preserves, according to the paper, the last 100,000 years of the Cretaceous and the first million years or so after the Cretaceous ended. Oh, wow. So about 1% of this stratigraphic sequence is at the end of the Cretaceous. Then the mass extinction happens in episode 5. Dinosaur, major dinosaur extinction aquatic reptiles, things all over the world, and then several hundred thousand years of recovery preserved at this fossil locality, which makes it an incredible place to study how ecosystems reacted to the extinction. Yeah. They have found so far over a thousand vertebrate fossils, including 16 identified species of mammals, which is real cool. And then remains of all sorts of reptiles and other stuff. Their plant remains include over 6,000 leaves and over 37,000 pollen grains that they've cataloged and examined. Whew. A lot of these fossils are extraordinarily well-preserved. So leaves, obviously, that's a big deal to get preserved. Also, like, entire skulls and largely complete remains of a lot of these mammals... The article that I read that we'll link to noted that it includes entire skulls of some mammals that have formerly only been known from the teeth. Oh, cool. So not only is this preserving a unique stretch of time, an important stretch of time, but it's a really, really impressive fossil site. Or perhaps set of fossil sites. (laughs) So as they go down the column, they can watch how the ecosystem rebounded after the mass extinction. And they find some cool things. And they were able to date this sequence using a combination of paleomagnetic dating and uranium lead dating, which is one form of radiometric dating. Nice. Uh, Episode 12. So they have a good sense of what's the timing of these fossil remains. In the plant realm, 
They found that for up to thousands of years after the extinction, it was lots and lots of ferns. And then after that, for hundreds of thousands of years, palms took over. Oh, not palm trees. Not palm trees, episode 73. <laughs> because those don't exist. <laughs> but palms. By the time you get to 100,000 years after the boundary, you start to see larger mammals reappearing. So mammals before then were small rodent-sized. Around 100,000 years, you start to see mammals hitting raccoon size. And at around that time, mammal richness doubles. So you get a bunch of new species, you get this increase in body size at around 100,000 years after the event. Fast forward down the column to, or up the column, 300,000 years after the event, you get an increase in plant diversity, including walnuts, hey. notably, and mammal size increases again. So now you're getting things that are like the size of small pigs and an increase in herbivores, along with the increase in plant diversity. And then you keep going, and as you're, and they noted at around 700,000 years after the extinction, you're seeing things that are wolf-sized and capybara-sized, and the oldest legumes in the fossil record. That is the bean family. Neat. Of plants. So they've got this awesome sequence of how this ecosystem is rebuilding itself in terms of plants and, and mammals. And they note that each of those significant time intervals where you get new radiations of animal and plant life and increases in body mass also appear to coincide with times of warming climate. Oh. So there's a lot happening here, and it's a really cool fossil site to suss out some of these questions. That's such a nice cataloging of events and you know multiple sources of data like the fact that they were able to date it with multiple things that are good dating tools like this is a really cool fossil site yeah it is i want to go to there it's i uh, yeah i want to go see <laughs> they uh the, the article ends by pointing out that there are of course plans for future examination uh one avenue is that the researchers want to start looking more closely at these mammal skulls, get some CT scans, get some up-close examination to learn about more about how these mammals were actually living, and take a closer look at those climate shifts. How exactly was the changing climate related to these shifts in the ecosystem? Because these are all important and intriguing questions to ask. Awesome. Yeah, so look forward to more about that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I, this is one that I'm really, really excited to just see pop back up in the news somewhere down the line. Yeah, we'll talk about this more in episode 97 when we do Icky Search. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to hold on to that news now. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my final bit of news is about potentially the oldest carnivorous dinosaur. Huh. Yeah. This is research by Christian Pacheco et al., published in Pure J, and the article is by Bob Yurka in phys.org. So this potentially very old, or it is very old, but potentially 
oldest carnivorous dinosaur was found in Brazil, which is in South America, which is convenient. Oh, which, which is in check notes. <laughs> I was South I America. was half tempted to get a piece of paper to go, which was in South America. South America. <laughs> hey, that's a convenient link. <laughs> My co-host. This some hot shot. <laughs> this new dinosaur named Nathavorax Cabrerae. That's a cool name. It's a cool name. The name, it, the species name is after the researcher who discovered it. And the uh, genus name roughly translates to, in Latin, a jaw for devouring things. Cool. <laughs> which is which is very uh, uh, eldritch Sar- horror. Sarlacc. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you will be digested for a thousand years. This... Dinosaur appears to be a member of the Herrerasaurids, which were a group of theropod dinosaurs, so two-legged, mainly predatory dinosaurs. And this one is notably old. It is dated back to approximately 233 million years ago. Wow. So we're in the Triassic, and South America is still part of Pangaea at this time. So this is one of the earliest dinosaurs, you know, period, appears to be the earliest carnivorous dinosaur it's significant because we don't know a lot about early dinosaur evolution sure don't the fossil was also notably intact uh intact enough in fact for the skull to be ct scanned oh good they got some information regarding the brain which seems to indicate that it probably had good balance and good eyesight nice which would make sense if it is a pursuit predator and chasing down its its food with the sharp teeth and claws that it does also have. So, very predatory, pretty straightforward on that. The part that surprised me when I was reading the article, and is also very notable, is it's not small. Like, usually when you say, you know, early Triassic carnivorous dinosaur, you're thinking, you know, maybe wolf-sized. This is, like, horse-sized. Wow. (laughs) This, This thing's actually pretty big. Approximately three meters long. And probably maybe up to one ton. And it's a dinosaur? And it's a dinosaur. Huh. Which means that for the time, this was probably one of the biggest predators in this area. And likely represents one of the apex, if not the apex predator for this area. So this was like not only one of the earliest, if not the earliest, but also one of the biggest predators of that time. So yeah. Nathavorax. That is very surprising. When you say... So early dinosaur evolution, as you said, is very unknown. In fact, uh, the first time we ever did a But We Digress episode was specifically because early dinosaur evolution is so confusing. (laughs) And trying to sort out theropod meat eaters from others is very difficult. A very large, apparently clearly predatory dinosaur from 233 million years ago sounds so odd to me that it makes me wonder if something went wrong i i had to double check when i was taking notes (laughs) and i was going through and i i breezed past the meters for a second and then it said one ton i went wait did did i read that wrong have i been looking up too many big animals for notes before this (laughs) yeah that's a Big dinosaur. That's a that's, that's a scary dinosaur, which is not usually what I expect from the Triassic. That is very interesting. Yeah, I will be interested to see what others make of this as it moves forward. Absolutely, and we'll get to talk a little bit more 
about other dinosaurs from this time period later in the episode. Because this is not the only early dinosaur from South America. No, no. South America, in fact, is famous. Famous. So name one of the earliest Triassic dinosaurs, and I think all of them are South America. I I know there are some slightly later ones that you get in North America, Mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure, like, if you look at a list of the top three or five or whatever earliest known dinosaurs, I think they're all South American. Yeah, so now we have a new... A, a new member for that list. Well, that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. And with this, we're going to wrap up news, play a little ditty, and then we're going to start talking about the cool, awesome continent of South America. So South America is by no means a mystery when it comes to the the topic of discussion of of, of wildlife and biodiversity and even fossil biodiversity. Uh, We're going to hit on some that I think don't get as much uh, attention as they should. But, uh, you know, a lot of the fame for South America is well-deserved. It is an impressive landmass. It's the fourth largest continent, so it's... You know, big, it has a huge diversity of ecosystems and geography, uh, which is one of my favorite things about it. You know, a lot of other continents kind of get stereotyped by some of their main ecosystems. And South America, that happens, but it's easy to forget that it actually has major arid regions, huge mountain range, which it's famous for. But in there, it also has, you know, cold, like truly you know, cold climate areas, as well as the tropics that it's famous for. Yeah. So I want to dive in a little bit here, look at what South America's like today, before we go in and talking about how weird it used to be versus how weird it is. Now, like, it's never not been weird. It, it's still... <laughs> That's sort of its shtick. Yeah. It's still super weird and awesome. It's no Australia. No. But it's... It's an it's an odd, odd place, and truly, it's probably no Australia just because it's holding hands with North America. Oh, and and now, <laughs> yeah, like if if we went to South America like twenty million years ago, it would have been much more Australia esque. I actually, there one of the the uh, websites I was taking notes from had a line that said, "If you visited South America, you know, before North America and South America reattached, it would be like visiting Australia today." Yep, and I just that's a perfect way to describe it it is it was very australia and then we north america came along and got rid of a lot of that australia someday we'll do a speculative evolution discussion about a world with only separate continents yeah oh yeah with no isthmus of panama so some of the major features of south america one of the first ones for that i think is important to mention is the andes for this is the main mountain range in South America and one of the main mountain ranges on the planet. Yeah. This is <laughs> a ridiculous mountain range. Uh, so this runs along the far western edge of the continent. So just right down along that side, almost the entire length of the continent. Yeah. For you geology nerds, it's where the Pacific is subducting mm-hmm. underneath the continent and Forcing these mountain ranges. Absolutely. And this is the world's longest mountain range. Cool. Covering 
5,850 kilometer, kilometers or 5,500 miles. Wow. So very long. And it also is has some of the highest peaks in the world. Second for average peak height only to the Himalayas. And its tallest mountain is also the tallest outside of Asia wow. in the Himalayas. <laughs> so the tallest one stands almost 7,000 meters tall. So this is big mountain range, long mountain range, big mountains, many of which are also volcanic. I was going to say. Yeah. Ring of Fire. Yeah. Are, is the lands around the Pacific where you've got lots of subduction zone activity happening. And subduction zones are great places for volcanoes. Which I didn't know before I was doing this research. I always kind of saw the the Andes as a very Himalaya-esque you know, range, uh, which is still cool and awesome, but I didn't know they were belching fire. Yep. Which makes them better. Also lava. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where you get a lot of the cold climates in South America as well. Uh, you know, so there are areas in the upper ranges of the mountains that are truly what, you know, what we would consider cold climates being uh, on average less than 10 degrees Celsius. Whew. So it, they... <clears throat> So the mountain range also gives them a, a huge variety of climate. Also along the coasts are the coastal plains of South America. These are your drier areas. Uh, the Atacama Desert in the western coastal plain is actually considered one of the driest regions on the planet. Whew. Average rainfall is about one millimeter or 0. 0.04 inches a year. Oh my goodness. <laughs> there are some parts of this desert that have never received rainfall in recorded history. Humans, since we've been paying attention to write stuff down, have not experienced rain in those areas. Wow. So it, <laughs> cold regions, very dry regions. You got some huge variety before we get to what South America is known for. Yes. Which are the river basins. Yep. So, yes, most of South America is very wet, is very rainy. But there are areas that... That, that shirk that stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> the river basins, river basin being an area where a basin, so think of like a bowl in the land, where water drains into and forms a river system. Right. So anywhere, the, the river's watershed, where it, anywhere on the continent nearby where if you spit, it's going to end up in the river. Yes. That's the river basin. And there are three major ones in South America. The Orinoco. Mm-hmm. The Paraguay. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Amazon. Uh, yeah, I've heard of that one. Always forget that one. <laughs> the Amazon River Basin occupies about 38% of the continent. Jeez, that's, <laughs> wow, what a river. <laughs> it is. It occupies 2.6 million square miles and is, to quote one of the articles I was reading, the mightiest river by far in terms of volume and width in the world. Yeah. Largest watershed in the world, flows more than 4,000 miles, with at certain parts being more, or almost, 30 miles across during the wet season. Yep. So, big river. <laughs> so, big And it comes, if it, it, it's from the west to the east. Yep. Just Andes, Amazon River Basin, across to the Atlantic Ocean. About one-fifth of all running surface water on the planet runs through the Amazon. Wow. <laughs> One fifth. So you can imagine in a in a river basin that obviously there is the Amazon, but then all of the tributaries 
all the streams and creeks and minor rivers and major rivers that feed into the Amazon proper, and then the delta systems at the end. This is all Amazon River Basin. The size of this river was really made apparent to me when I read the next little factoid, which is that it is greater in volume, meaning it moves more water Mm -hmm. than the next six largest rivers combined. So it's an impressive waterway. But it is the second longest. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not impressed anymore. <laughs> so, so close. Is the mm. Nile the first The Nile. Okay. The Nile. Yeah, I thought so. One article, though, said that due to discrepancies in measuring, they are so close that there's some experts that say they're, they're effectively the same. Yeah. Like, hmm. the, the typical length of the Nile is 4,258 miles. Uh, so it's just a bit. So it's not a notable second place. They're in the same weight class. This is the Olympics when it's, all right, we have to wait until they check the camera and get to the frame. (laughs) And the Nile wins by a nose. Yes. This is also a crazy diversity, biodiversity hotspot within South America, home to somewhere around 2,000 species of fish, (laughs) including... Hundreds of species of hundreds of species with electrical abilities, not just the electric eel, but other electrosensitive fish. Cool. <laughs> sixty species of piranha. Wow, wow! I didn't know there yeah. were sixty species of piranha. Not all of them are the flesh eating one. There are all, lots of fruit eating and and other. Mm-hmm. There's also my favorites, which are meat eating piranhas, but just go and like nip little bits of fin and like dead skin off of fish. So they're just annoying piranha. They're not predatory grazers. Yeah. They're, they're not, they're they're not vicious. They just come over and stop it. Stop it. (laughs) We don't have to talk about this in detail, but you did just say fruit eating piranha. And I just wanted the the listeners to make sure that yes, you heard that right. With horrifying human looking teeth. And then you also get things like the Amazon river dolphins, yeah. Uh, which are the largest species of river dolphin. Cool. They and, have the most space. Yes. <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. I could go through what lives in the Amazon. Oh, yeah. So ask for an Amazon River episode later on. <laughs> uh, there's also the Amazon River Reef, the reef that's growing under the outflow of the Amazon River. Yeah, we talked about that mm-hmm. in episode 36. You mentioned that reef. So go listen to that one for that. Because once again, if I go into every cool detail about South America, <laughs> we will never get to the stuff that's gone extinct. The Amazon River is also vital because it is what directly feeds the Amazon rainforest. I've also heard of that. Yeah. Amazon rainforest makes up about half the rainforests of the entire planet. And it is the largest and potentially oldest rainforest in the world today that's still around today i guess i should say it's like quintessential rainforest and in fact i think in the last episode ali made a comment about how that is what a rainforest is yes like if there's like a holotype for rainforest (laughs) the amazon absolutely it and man talk about biodiversity oh my goodness Wow. So biodiversity in animals is crazy. I'll go over some of those numbers first, but the plants are really what blows my mind. Uh, The estimated species of trees, a number of species of trees in the Amazon rainforest is 16,000. Wow. There are, there is a tree for every year we are estimated to still be digging at the gray fossil site. (laughs) (laughs) So it is a a tree species, tree species. (laughs) And wow. 
the the density of trees is also insane. One survey uh, found within a single acre 100 different tree species. Trees on trees on trees. Trees on trees on trees. In one square kilometer, it was estimated there to be roughly 90,000 tons of living plants. Wow. This It is just life crammed in on itself. Cool. And then within those trees, you have animal life that I'm not going to go into all the different kinds of cool animals. I'm going to give you some numbers because, oh my God, these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> roughly 20 million species of insects. And then... One article just had hundreds of spiders and butterflies, like specifically <laughs> yep. somewhere around just below 1,300 birds, that, bird species. Yep. <laughs> More than 400 mammals and 400 amphibians. So 400 of each species <laughs> and almost 400 reptile species. I want to point out that that number of mammals and birds is roughly 10% of all mammals and birds. Yep. Jeez. It's insane. And then on top of these crazy numbers, and not to be unexpected when you're dealing with such insane numbers, is the number of endemic species is also ridiculous. Oh yeah, endemic species meaning species that are not found anywhere else. Yes, they are specific to this locality. So within South America, there are huge numbers of South America-specific species, endemic species. Uh, in plants, they said, especially among angiosperms, no fewer than 25 families and 3,500 genera, genus, of plants are endemic to the tropical and temperate zones of South America, and 89 families and some 3,000 species of bird Wow, throughout all of South America are endemic there. Wow. So just... The numbers here are ridiculous, and many of these numbers probably will be adjusted as newer surveys come in and older surveys go out of style, and trying to find which numbers were the most reliable ones, it was tricky because different reliable sources would give me slightly different numbers. Right. So don't take these numbers as, like, the ones you have to do math by. The take-home is there's a bunch. There's a lot of diversity (sighs) in South America. It's insane. It also has some notable things for just the cool kinds of animals it has. Two that I just want to give some credit to, because, you know, I, don't, I picked two out of a bag. Uh, it does have the world's heaviest snake. Sure does. You know, it's got the it's got the anaconda. So you got anacondas down there. The heaviest snake and second longest? It Yeah, I think so. It's it's in that, that realm of ridiculous these are all longs. the long snakes. But mm-hmm. yeah, second longest. Only because there are some crazy long reticulated pythons. Yeah. <laughs> Those record holders. <laughs> but the, the, it has the big, heavy anaconda. It's one of the places in the world where a, a big snake uh, ranks as one of the apex predators. Yeah. Which is cool. And my favorite thing about South America, it is the highest density of crocodilian species Ooh. of any continent. With eight species. Wow. Not counting subspecies. Hmm. All six caimans and two crocodiles, the Orinoco and the American crocodile, all can be found somewhere within South America. It's a pretty cool place. So it's just ridiculous. Hey, listeners, tell us your favorite South American animals. Oh, please or do. Or plants. Yes. Let's not leave out plants, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, you tell us your favorite. <laughs> yeah, we'll get her back on. <laughs> So lots and lots and lots 
of cool species. If you if there's any part of that that was far too brief for you, it was far too brief for us as well. <laughs> Give us requests of what you want to hear more about. Let us know which part of that you want us to talk about more. <laughs> but we've got to turn the dial back and start talking about where did South America come from and how did it get to be the way it is. Indeed. Real quick note, of course. Also, islands. Yeah. Like the Galapagos. Famous islands associated with South America. Too. True. True. It's just there's the list of there's cool so much. things. I found so many good articles that I had to just breeze through. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's go ahead and start looking at the history of South America. Uh, we're not going to go through it in its entirety. I want to focus mainly on some of the most notable fossil-rich time periods that gave us some really peculiar, cool fossil groups. But first, to get the the foundation set let's talk about how the foundation of south america got set oh so the actual formation of the continent uh i found could typically be summarized in three different developmental stages since that's the way it was listed on the sources <laughs> <laughs> the the first one being the precambrian so we're we're more than 500 million years ago we are looking at when the core bits of crust came together to form South America. These are called cratons. And there are five that make up South America. The Amazonia, the Sao Francisco, the Luis Alves, the Alto Paraguay, and the, the Rio de la Plata. These crushed together during this time. And many of these rocks are still able to be dated mm. in South America. The oldest dated rock goes back to 3.4 billion years old nice. in Brazil. So over the span of the first 4 billion years of Earth history, all of this tectonic foundation is creating the continent as we know it. Yeah, so creating what will eventually be a South America thing. Uh, crushing together, second stage goes into the Paleozoic, during which time those cratons have fully accreted themselves to one another, and over time become part of the supercontinent Gondwana, the southern supercontinent, which then becomes part of Pangaea. And so we're we're breezing through these periods. Oh yeah. But smushed together into Gondwana, so it was always part of the southern portion of land. Right, along with Africa, Australia, Antarctica. Exactly. And then that gets smushed in with everything else into Pangaea, which rolls us into the next phase, going into the Mesozoic and up to today, which is when things start breaking and moving into what we recognize. So Pangaea actually does not last very long. Uh, we've mentioned this before when we talked about our previous continents, but Pangaea formed and then almost immediately started breaking up, in which point, going into the Mesozoic, South America starts moving away from Africa. So it was attached to Africa only in the early Mesozoic and starts moving away pretty quickly with the Atlantic Ocean, the Southern Atlantic Ocean, opening up and pu pushing things sideways. And as we go into the Mesozoic, it's still connected at this point, actually, to, for a short time, North America and Antarctica, which is connected to Australia still. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the way things are going in the Mesozoic until we get to the late Cretaceous, at which point it has actually separated from North America and now is only attached to Antarctica, which is still attached to Australia. And so before we follow it it's on, on its path further, let's pause here in the Mesozoic, where for most of the time it's connected th to North America, Antarctica, and by proxy, Australia. 
So it looks like South America. Yes. Like you'd recognize it as South America by this time. And you've still got these lingering connections, Mm -hmm. but it's the Mesozoic. Exactly. So let's pause here and look at some of the weird stuff that was living on South America during this time. Yeah, in in the earliest times that it was recognizable as South America. Yes. There's lots of cool fossil animals that have been found in South America. I wanted to look at some of the, the notable dinosaurs that have been found there because there are some weird ones and particularly famous ones. Yeah. First and foremost, being... The first ones, early dinosaurs, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, are really well known in South America. They sure are. And so Triassic dinosaurs, uh, we mention Nathovorax in the news, but probably the most well-known or popularly well-known is Eoraptor. Yeah. Eoraptor for a long, long time was known as the earliest dinosaur. The first dinosaur. That's that's the first one. And it was also, for a while, known as the first lineage to the predatory dinosaurs until more recent findings have pushed it actually more toward the herbivorous side of things. Yeah, because early dinosaurs are super confusing. Because they're super weird. Uh, One of the dinosaurs that did that was Eodromaeus, which is another early... These are all dating back to right around 230 million years ago. Yeah. And, you know, give or take a couple. Uh, So that's still Pangaea time. Yes. We're still... Not quite broken away yet. Like so, this is things are starting to break here. But these uh, these two dinosaurs are both smaller, lightly built, two legged. Eoraptor seem to have more omnivorous teeth, while Eodromaeus seems to be much more predatory. And that finding was actually what made them push Eoraptor more toward the herbivorous side of things. And it very likely could be a basal sauropodomorph. So we're still teasing all that stuff out. And now we have this giant Nathovorax <laughs> hanging out in the same area. Now, one difference between those that I want to mention here is that both Eoraptor and Eodromaeus come from Argentina. Yes. Which is a place you're going to hear a whole bunch about as we continue through our dinosaur list. Because <laughs> Argentina has a lot of dinosaur fossils. Big deal place for dinosaurs. Oh my goodness. Many of the big notable ones are from the Cretaceous. Uh, We do have some Spinosaurs, which we've mentioned before. In In episode 42. Yeah. So Irritator is found here. And Oxalia, both from Brazil. We get things, uh, Ceratosaurians, which are same group as Ceratosaurus, the famous three-horned predatory dinosaur. I liked, I pulled this one out mostly because of the name, because it's Velocisaurus. Yep. (laughs) Which is fun. And this is a moderate size, you know, so we're looking at probably around five feet long. Uh, Predator, Argentina, once again. Uh, The Ceratosaurians, there are a number of dinosaurs that seem to be related to that group here, uh, which is a much wider group that includes other dinosaurs in it. But probably the most notable group of predatory dinosaurs are the the Abelisaurs. Yeah. Which are very South American. They're basically Gondwana's answer to the Tyrannosaurs. Yeah. Taking over the northern continents. And so... Huge variety of them. Uh, many of them just look like your big theropods, but not all of them. My favorite <laughs> of the South American dinosaurs doesn't look anything like any of the others, which is Carnotaurus. Oh, man. So Carnotaurus, made famous by the Disney movie Dinosaurs, which was my favorite part about that movie because the rest of it's weird, uh, <laughs> was found in Argentina. There's only one species known, Carnotaurus sastrii. 
And only one individual. And only one specimen. Yeah. Uh, a well-preserved specimen, but just one. Yeah. So as far as like specimen to fame ratio goes, Carnotaurus is doing pretty well. Not too bad. <laughs> this is a, a lightly built predator, bipedal, somewhere in the vicinity of 25 to 30 feet long. And, you know, weighing uh, a little more than a ton, maybe ton and a half. Notable for large, thick horns over the eyes, a more snub-nosed skull with a powerful neck and itty-bitty vestigial arms that, like, proportionally are even more dinky than T-Rexes. Oh, yeah. So the, these itty-bitty arms, stubby face, powerful neck, and then long, slender legs. Yeah. So a very oddly proportioned predator. And this is how the, uh, the, the very characteristic of what makes a bellysaur is so weird and strange is that pug faces, mm-hmm. really tiny arms like the tyrannosaur, the famous tyrannosaurs up north. And then, yeah, those long runner's legs, like very much the among the most diverse large predators in the south that didn't hit it big in the north. Yeah. Now, speaking of big predators, we can't go through South America without mentioning Giganotosaurus. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. Whoo, and big, big, big. Uh, for a long time, this was making all the headlines for being the new biggest yeah. predatory dinosaur of all time. The, one of the largest specimens gives us a size estimate range of between 39 and 43 feet long, a skull that's somewhere five to six feet long, and total weight of <laughs> this one has a long, a large discrepancy because weight's weird yeah four and a half to 15 tons yeah it's big predatory dinosaur so t-rex sized carcharodontosaurus sized spinosaurus sized it it hits that little it's in that that exclusive little yes. group of <laughs> this appears to be as big as theropods ever got yeah and that's that's one of the things uh one research noted that was looking at actually comparing known sized predatory dinosaurs and seeing how the skull compares, because skull size is a typical way to try to estimate what total body size and weight would be, and that it's not really reliable. So no, it T-Rex size is the best way to say it, uh, though it is in the same group as Cacarodontosaurus. So yes, it is. same group, which means it has a much more narrow head. More think more Allosaurus if you're needing popular dinosaurs to compare it to than T-Rex with you know very serrated teeth though still yeah tyrannosaurus had the big robust beefy head the the um doberman pincher yep whereas carcharodontosaurus like giganotosaurus had the sort of more axe shaped yeah it's narrower it's a little bit longer it's tall and then your spinosaurus sort of the other group of stupid big ones had croc faces yes some people have suggested that the reason for the more narrow axe-shaped face is it's better for slicing in Mm -hmm. to big prey and it's been suggested that potentially their big prey could have been the biggest of prey (laughs) the titanosaurs which are not only known in south america but boy are there a bunch of them down there i i want to say and i don't know this off the top of my head that they either start down there Mm -hmm. or are most diverse down there or maybe it's just that they were first identified down there South America is famous for titanosaurian sauropods. And so these are sauropods being the big long-necked dinosaurs. Titanosaurs, as the name suggests, ridiculously big. Yeah, even for sauropods. These are, (laughs) these also have the biggest of dinosaurs. Uh, Not just sauropods, but 
Of dinosaurs. Of land animals. And of land life. Yeah. Ever. So, two of the big names there uh-huh. is Argentinosaurus. Naturally. Which is found in Argentina. And the more recent Antarctosaurus. You've probably seen these names pop up in more of those articles of like, new biggest. Yeah. Once again, these are usually very partial specimens, though some have been in good condition. Mm-hmm. We're trying to estimate from not all of it. And... We're estimating within very close margins. Yes. And just because one statistical analysis is a technically bigger upper limit does not mean it was the new biggest dinosaur. But both of these are ridiculously big. <laughs> Coming at, you know, somewhere around 98 to 215 feet long and 88 to 100 tons. Yeah. So massive animals. I did like that I was able to find some limb lengths. So a fibula uh, from Argentinosaurus. So this is lower back leg bones was one and a half meters long. <laughs> Jeez, that's a fibula. <laughs> and a femur on Antarctosaurus was 7.7 7 feet long, 2.3 meters. So these are the famous dinosaurs that you get image pictures of the paleontologists that find them laying down next to their femur. Yep. To show that that thigh bone is longer than they are yes one of these uh, south american titanosaurs is uh, also a uh, patagotitan yes which is the one that is now at the museum in new york that fills an entire room yep argentinosaurus fills an entire room down at the fern bank in yes. atlanta <laughs> <laughs> big dinosaurs they're so big but sauropods were not going to be left out of the weird dinosaur race with a margosaurus this is a sauropod, much smaller, just a moderate, you know, 30-ish feet long. Yeah, that actually is a, a rather small yeah, sauropod. Yeah, <laughs> so very moderate. <laughs> but this, uh, once again from Argentina, this sauropod had long spines, two rows of long spines going down the neck and back that just look like these big porcupine protrusions and one of my favorite sauropods just because it's so ridiculously decorated uh i've I've seen multiple things that suggest that they may have had keratin coverings or or some sort of skin covering you know but it has these large spines more notable than any other sauropod at least for that kind of display most often i see them reconstructed as dual sails yes that's what i see often the, the the back of the neck yep so yeah weird times during the mesozoic weird creatures yeah it was it was it was a weird time already mm-hmm. for interesting dinosaurs it's a it's a sort of place to look for gondwanan forms and important for paleontology yes because it has so much unique and intriguing mesozoic life well in early stuff like that's one of the most exciting things like it has a lot of my favorite weird dinosaurs because i like weird stuff yeah but it also has that early stuff, which is critical. Like, that is such a a gap in our knowledge of dinosaur evolution. Now, I know there's other stuff that was alive during the Mesozoic. I know I just focused on a bunch of dinosaurs. Yes. There are going to be some things I mentioned later on that were still alive during here. So don't worry, everybody. But once again, <laughs> it's, a lo- it's a lot of this continent. We're real sorry. So at some point, just ask us to go over the Mesozoic of South America. <laughs> and I promise I'll go, we'll go over different stuff. <laughs> But for now, let's take another step forward in time and look at what things are like after the Mesozoic running toward today. In the age of mammals. In the age of mammals.
after the demise of the dinosaurs and Mesozoic life. Episode 5. We enter the Cenozoic. Age of mammals. And here's where we really start to see South America distinguish itself from the other continents in that it becomes isolated yes. for a major chunk of this time. Episode 4 and 50 we talked, and 40 we talked about what happens mm-hmm. when a landmass become separated and your life is now cut off from exchanging evolutionary info with its neighbors. So during the beginning of the Cenozoic, we see it start to, it it solidifies its disconnect with North America. It is still connected to Antarctica, but Antarctica starts disconnecting with Australia. Yeah. And also getting colder before too long. And so we're seeing that start to break up. And by around 34-ish million years ago, South America comes away from Antarctica. Yeah, the Drake Passage opens. Yes, and becomes fully isolated from every other landmass and stays that way for the majority of time leading up to today. About yeah. 10 million years ago is when we see it start reconnecting. So for the better part, you know, over 20 million years, it's on its own. Yeah. And this is when a lot of weird stuff happens. And, and it gets up to some crazy stuff. Oh, man. So we see lots of cool stuff. We're going to jump right into the cool, weird animals. Some of these we've already mentioned, so they will get... We, you can go listen to those episodes. Terror birds being one of those weird... Oh, yeah. They just weird groups that reign supreme. The forest racids. Yep. Episode 37.5, we talked about the terror birds. Yeah, one of our few point fives. Mm-hmm. These were those predatory, flightless, often very large yeah. birds that became, for a time, the dominant predators in certain parts of South America, and lasted actually until very recently. This is one of the few groups we'll talk about that came way up until recent times. Yeah, they were in South America for almost all of the Cenozoic. Yes. Because they show up right after the end of the Cretaceous. It's it's dinosaurs reclaiming their their throne. Yes, exactly what it is. We also see some other old members of, of dominant lineages trying to hold that... That previous title, the Sebekosukians. Ooh. This is a group of mesocrocodilian, so cousins of today's crocs. So we're fairly close, actually. But almost fully, or as far as the specimens that have found so far, fully terrestrial and predatory. So South America already mm-hmm. kicking off the Cenozoic, terror birds and land crocs. Yeah. It's a now, cool place. This group actually predates where we're talking about right now they showed up in the jurassic and lasted till the miocene oh but certain groups were more prominent different times uh two of those were the the family sebecidae and brarosuchidae brarosuchus being the famous member of the the latter group was noteworthy during the late cretaceous in brazil so there's you go some other mesozoic stuff yeah (laughs) this is a 10 to 13 foot long (laughs) terrestrial <laughs> mesocrocodilian with narrowed snout, uh, flattened serrated teeth, and some of the other hints that give us that it's terrestrial uh, that I liked and I had not actually heard specifically mentioned before about these kinds of groups is the nostrils are on the front of the snout like most mammals, not on the top. Huh. Yeah. It's, so it's just, it, it sounds like the Triassic, like Postosuchus yes, type animal. <laughs> 
the the nickname I coined when I was teaching my my coworkers about these types of uh, croc relatives back at the aquarium was uh, wolf crocs. Ooh, which yeah, I mean that's yeah. it's a catchy phrase. This is these are all features that are shared by basically all of the Sebekosukians uh, and seems to be a trend in this group. Sebekus being the famous species that showed up during this time in the, the Eocene of Patagonia Ooh. was more moderately sized. I think it was to be like five to seven feet long. Okay, no big deal. No big deal. I mean, that, that one you can take. <laughs> but uh, fun note on that one, it is named after Sobek or Sebek, oh. the Egyptian crocodile-headed god. So in the Eocene, now we're in the Cenozoic, which means that this creature, along with early terror birds, is hunting mammals. Yes, like running around the forests <laughs> of South America hunting. Whew. And it, previously they thought these uh, uh, croc relatives might have been semi-aquatic, but it seems like, no, they are fully terrestrial. Their, their femurs have features that seem like their legs were under the body. Made for moving. So it's just the Triassic again. Yeah. Back to the Triassic. Wow. Now, not to be left out. Nope. The water also has its juggernauts. (laughs) Two of the coolest big fossil animals ever show up after the Mesozoic. First comes in Titanoboa. Titanoboa, episode three. The largest snake in the fossil record. Unlike the theropods... Right, and the and the titanosaurs where we were talking about how there's like a bunch of yes. different ones that kind of fit that top category. Titanoboa is the largest known snake by a ridiculous margin. It's silly how how much you have to jump. Anacondas today come in at over twenty feet long. Mm-hmm. Reticulated pythons up in the twenty five foot range. Gigantophus which was at one point considered the largest snake ever, was estimated at over 30 feet. The most recent length estimates for Titanoboa are around 45 feet long and built like an anaconda. Yeah. It's just, it's so big. It's It's stupid big. Probably eating fish. (laughs) Which, yeah, I mean... It's a readily, uh, readily available food source. And there were big fish. There were big so fish. So Titanoboa is from the Paleocene, mm-hmm. so very earliest Cenozoic of Colombia. Yes, it is. And so that's toward the, we're looking at the top of the continent there, while Argentina is down into the southern portion. I forgot to say where that was. Yes, yes. In case you don't have a map in front of you. Titanoboa also lived alongside uh, bite-sized crocs. It did. Yum, 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 yum. Yes. Now, speaking of non-bite-sized crocs... Purusaurus, yeah, is my is my contender. <laughs> on, this is the biggest caiman that has ever lived, uh, and one of the biggest crocodilians <laughs> that yep. has ever lived. The, the the three big crocodilian, like you got your for those who like these animals, yep. Dinosuchus, which mm-hmm. is a gator cousin, Sarcosuchus, who is a croc cousin, and yeah, the caiman, Purusaurus, and the caimans were not going to be left out. <laughs> this is in the Miocene, so more recent. This is came in that comes in at estimated lengths of somewhere in 30 to 40 feet long with a skull that's up to about five feet long, but also just beefy, like more like a T-Rex skull than a slender croc skull. And I've seen estimates for its bite up in like the seven tons bite force range. <laughs> wow. Uh, found, it, found throughout South America as well. Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, and 
in the Amazonian region. So this was a prominent oh. species during this time. This would have been one of the biggest predators in the continent cool. during that time. So yeah, South America was awesome. Also, we should point out uh, in the same general area, if I recall correctly, as Titanoboa, Stupendemus. Oh, yeah. The largest freshwater turtle. Yes, absolutely. Which was, uh, now, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going off the top of my head, like seven or eight feet long or something I, I always see it compared to like a dinner table. Yeah. Like. Just huge. Big, 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 cool reptiles. Yeah, double check me, listeners, on yes. that. The, look up the numbers. Don't quote me that. I don't have it in front of me. But it's big. We could go over all sorts of cool animals in this group, but Shaley specifically asked for cool weird south american mammals so let's talk about mammals so let's focus on those because south america has really neat mammals part of this is because of what it was connected to and what it was isolated from even before this time of isolation and it is one of the only other continents well known for marsupials so a bit of background on marsupials dear listeners <laughs> so your mammal family tree today is mostly one major group called placentals yep and then a whole different group called marsupials, which are your kangaroos, koalas, mammals with pouches. Yes. Mammals that have too many teeth and too many vaginas. And there's all <laughs> sorts of weird things with their reproduction. And then there's monotremes, but yep. know, they're a whole other thing. Today, marsupials are almost entirely restricted to Australia. But last I heard, it is thought that they originated in North America. Yes. And that they actually moved through South America through Antarctica, into Australia. And today, most of them are limited to Australia. They are gone from Antarctica, surprisingly yeah, enough. As most things are. A bunch are still in South America. And we have one. Yes. One marsupial species still native to North America. And it's our friendly uh, little trash divers. Yep. <laughs> the Virginia opossum. The Virginia opossum. And even though Australia is the one known for it, South America still has a bunch. Yeah. Somewhere around 90 species. Lots still. of possums. Lots of opossums. And I found out the difference between opossum and possum. Possums are Australian and a different group than the opossums. Oh. Yeah, the O's important. Huh. I never, I always just thought it was people being pretentious. Well. Yeah. There you go. The opossums, the Didelphimorphia, are the New World opossums. These make up more than 90% of South American marsupials. So right, right. you're basically talking about opossums if you're talking about South American marsupials. Today. Yes. And so these are ranged wide. They have, a you know, uh, they've been in South America for quite some time. They have a, a good fossil record there. Uh, we have the Virginia opossum that makes its way up to southern Canada. Yeah, um, it's just which, like... <laughs> Wow. Uh, and then the Patagonian. <laughs> Soon. Yes. Soon. yes. <laughs> I'm holding the fort, sisters. The Patagonian opossum goes all the way down to southern Argentina, but most are in the central areas of South America in the subtropics. Uh, those are your most common today. But if you get into extinct stuff, you get really cool things. The Sparacidonta marsupials, which may not be definitely marsupials, but may be proto-marsupials. But okay. marsupial cousins. Close cousins of marsupials at minimum. Were a group extinct now that were m the main mammalian predators yeah. in South America. Marsupial predators. Which we do not have much of nowadays. I think the largest living, definitely living, sorry, yep. th thylacine enthusiast. Yep. Uh, 
marsupial carnivores today are the Tasmanian devils. Yeah. Which are not big. No. No. And even the thylacine was, you know, coyote wolf size. Yeah. I mean, so it's, you know, big enough to be a threat, but not, you know, something to, to put in the record books. Some of these got up to bear sized. Yeah. <laughs> so some of these were big. These were dominated the predatory uh, category down in South America, especially because there were no placental predators to compete with. Once they did have to compete with those, it, the competition did not go in their favor. Sorry, marsupials. Yeah. But they do have one of my favorite uh, uh, fossil mammal predators on the list, which is oh. Thylacosmilus. Thylacosmilus. Oh, it's so cool. Thylacosmilus is a, a convergently evolved marsupial to the saber-toothed cats. Yep. It, it is very cat-like in shape. It has two prominent saber cananiform teeth <laughs> and was about the same size. It was a little bit smaller than Smilodon, but it was about jaguar-sized. So it was not small uh, and even had some of the similar characteristics. It had beefy uh, neck and shoulders and forelimbs. So it seemed like it was able to wrestle with its prey. Uh, but my favorite thing about it is its saber teeth were notably different in that they were open-rooted. Yep. And those roots arced above the orbits, the eye sockets. And so these were saber teeth that could perpetually grow. They were like rodent incisors. Yes. They grew forever. <laughs> Which is so awesome. Because <laughs> when marsupial marsupials are like, hey placentals are doing this thing what if we did it but weird yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so this this was a major predator during this time as far as i know we have as little understanding of what it was doing with those sabers as we do with saber-toothed cats <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> when i was looking this up i found videos that were you know very much emphasizing these were convergently evolved tools for taking down prey bigger than themselves but as we talked about a few news is back that's not what it seems like they were used for so so cool marsupial predators as well as bukus of opossums yeah <laughs> just all the opossums <laughs> you could ever want uh there are other uh, uh marsupial groups there today uh that are are range in sizes but most don't get very big nowadays they're opossum sized and down the other uniquely south american mammal group and and famous ones still today are the xenarthrans yeah oh once now, again now we were just talking about how marsupials are weird yes but if you leave out the marsupials and you look <laughs> just at the placental mammal family tree yeah then that crown <laughs> goes to xenarthrans xenarthrans to the marsupial we learned it from you <laughs> so this is your armadillos yeah and their cousins yes Sloths. Sloths. And the anteaters. And anteaters. So all very unique, weird groups of mammals uh, connected by the the source of their name, which are the extra weird connections on their vertebra. Uh, and also all have weird big claws. That's something I've always noticed. And it's always stood out to me, especially since they're using them in different ways nowadays. Yeah. So I've had a... They also have very odd teeth. Yes, they do. Their dentition is weird. Very strange, because I think they all, again, I don't have my notes, but ever-growing. Yep. And they don't have enamel? Yeah. 
at least I, I know it, sloths I don't, the, yeah, and yeah, I'm ninety yeah. percent sure armadillos don't, and most anteaters don't have teeth. Right. So they're just <laughs> really weird. Once again, I don't have notes in front of me, so yeah. don't quote me on all the. But they're so weird. They're just they're just weird mammals. Bizarre. So pilosa, which includes sloths and anteaters, is the is the smaller of the Xenarthran groups, only being two sloths nowadays. Uh, but. The fossil record of sloths in South America is huge and intense, which is why we did a whole episode and talk with sloth experts on it. So. Episode 24 and the sloth Q&A. So go listen to that because there's tons <laughs> of cool information there. Most sloths were ground sloths. Yes. From little, you know, something like black bear sized or such to just monstrous yeah, sloths. Some of the biggest land mammals. <laughs> All over South America. So sloths were doing great up until they weren't. Uh, Anteaters, it seems, have never been a super numerous group. Their fossil record's very sparse. And today, there are only uh, four modern species. Hmm. Now, they, they're very diverse. You have arboreal, you have land-based uh, anteaters. The giant anteaters actually, like, large dog-sized. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not small, but not a lot of anteaters, not a lot of information on what they used to. They seem like they've always been kind of you know, moderate in their just, diversity. Just doing their own thing. Yeah, just just chill anteaters. The Singulata, the armadillo side of things, that's where <laughs> the Xenarthrans focused all of their efforts. Oh, yeah. That's another thing Xenarthrans tend to have. <laughs> Osteoderm. Yeah! Bones in their skin. That's a feature of this group. Like some kind of reptile. <laughs> Not that I'm complaining about <laughs> reptile features. I mean, features. you're emoting a good reptile, there, but uh, armadillos are about two-thirds of living Xenarthrans and hugely successful. Uh, they have they, they, they show up here in North America all the way down to South South America. Today. Yep. So all over today and were also successful in the past. Notable extinct groups, ones that don't look like what they look like today, are also big members of this group. You have the famous one, the Glyptodonts. The, the Volkswagen Beetle. Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> Big igloo-shaped armored shell of osteoderms. Glyptodon measured 10 feet long, including the tail, and 5 feet tall. So, an igloo. An igloo. Made out of flesh and bone. Yes. With a tail that, that had spikes on it. Oh, and like 2 tons. And just enormous. Just massive famously discussed in episode 70 convergent with yes the armored dinosaurs the ankylosaurs famously discussed in episode 69 of the common descent <laughs> which also a notable thing for them one of the only other animals to truly converge with ankylosaurs like oh, no yeah. one else had the had the cojones to do it the glyptodons <laughs> tail clubs they were like that that those those guys had the right idea but there were other big members. The Pampatheers weren't as big, but they were basically just giant armadillos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These got to be like 400 pounds. Like God, three, That's a black bear. That's a black bear. And like three-banded armadillos had armored shells with flexible bands, movable scoots. So it, it could have actually, maybe not rolled up all the way, but it could actually have moved and been more mobile so picture something the size of a black bear, but running all weird like armadillos run. <laughs> <laughs> so like 
big armored mammals running around South America doing whatever they want, I guess. And then you get into the really weird stuff just because it's like even the name of this group, which is often called the native ungulates. Mm -hmm. But they're not actually ungulates. So your ungulates are your hoofed mammals. Yes. Around the world, right? Mm -hmm. Your horses, your deer, your antelope, your giraffes. Like hippos and rhinos, like your, I walk out on the plains, I walk through the yep. forest, I eat the plants, this is what I do. Classic herbivorous mammal form today. These are often called uh, native South American ungulates, uh, or some version of that. Not because they're true ungulates, but because they are super similar. Yeah, they have convergently evolved. Yes. This is South America's answer to ungulates around the world. And for many of these groups, it is still unsure of exactly how close or far they are from true ungulates. Some of them are actually seem to be fairly close in relation. Hmm. Members of the initial split between ungulates and the, this group. Many of these did actually have hooves, but not all of them did. There were some that had nails and claws or something in between. Uh, so weird stuff. But all were herbivorous, which is another very ungulate trait. The Noto Ungulata, which there in the name is, is not quite. <laughs> <laughs> not an Ungulata. <laughs> Included things that were similar to everything from rhinos to hippos to rabbits to rodents. So like, yeah, very diverse, lots of different shapes. Herbivore. Herbivore. Unarmored herbivores. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> these, uh, many of these actually evolved... Ever-growing hypsilonont uh, teeth, like rodents. So premolars and molars that would just keep growing as they grinded them down. So open-rooted once again. Uh, several of these survived until recently into the Pleistocene. Uh, some as recent as just 2 million years ago or so. Toxodon is one of the famous members of this group because it was discovered by Charles Darwin. Yeah, I was waiting for the moment to bring this up. Mm-hmm. South America's mammal fossil record is also historically super important. Yes, it is. Because finding fossils in South America was one of the big things that Darwin did on his big journeys, episode 28. He collected tons of fossils. It was a huge inspiration for his hypothesis of natural selection. Yeah, one of Darwin's toxodons we actually printed at the fossil site not too long ago off of a scan taken at, I think it's the London Museum, that has one of his toxodons. Oh, yeah. I was reading one of the articles talking about them scanning that. That's super cool. Yeah, I it's in my office. Yeah, I'm going to go <laughs> look at that later on. Toxodon, uh, late Miocene to Holocene, has a, the, the species Darwin discovered had a skull about the size of an elephant's. <laughs> Which he bought for, as, it, as the article I read said, a shilling and a sixpence. So about... 750 pounds today <laughs> yeah. so like nothing uh this resembled a very heavy rhinoceros mm-hmm. uh so big bodied eight to ten feet long and probably not quite five feet at the shoulder uh tall so big rhino uh type animal three thousand pounds so heavy set herbivore which is notable since there's not a thing we find a lot of in south america today no. Nope. Much like North America, where we lost a bunch of our big herbivores, but we used to have bukus of them, South America, as you'll see as we go through this list, was very similar. This one also had giant rodent-like teeth, 
which it said uh, Darwin was thrilled at the idea of a rhino, rhino-sized rodent. <laughs> but now we know it's part of the Noto Ungulata. Another member of these South America kind of ungulates are the, the light top turna, which are kind of antelope camel-esque yeah. mammals. I know we're doing the thing we always accuse things of doing with marsupials, of just comparing them to the more notable version. But right. I, 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 that's kind of what these animals are. We talked about one of these way early on, uh, uh, Macrocania, which was in the yes. news a bunch, because there was a whole big new study about what exactly it is. Mm-hmm. And the DNA analysis that was done there showed that it, it actually seems like these are a, a sister group to perissodactyls horses tapers rhinos yes so the the ones that stand on their middle toe uh these twin lineages seem to have split about 66 million years ago and this is one of the sister lineages that was prominent in south america it they were very camel-esque in shape uh not today's camels with humps but like the llama very slender long-necked long-legged but the skulls seem to suggest that they may have had a tapir like trunk yeah which is also seems to be a theme but why with a lot of these weird <laughs> mammal groups in south america now that being said perissodactyls noses lips mobile yeah upper lip that's yeah not not too unimaginable yeah that, that was my favorite part about going to petting zoos as a kid was watching their lips go and just pull the food in <laughs> so you have these weird camel-like things the astrapotheres are another it seems somewhat trunked group of mammals uh less diverse than the previous two and tusked uh these were medium to large sized uh seems like they might have had that proboscis also potentially kind of semi-aquatic so they they kind of sound like big tapirs like warthog tapirs like warthog tapirs huh uh these uh astrapotherium for one example got up to sizes of about eight feet long and two thousand pounds so like a rhino again yeah or a hippo yes it's got those tusks <laughs> yep so it's like a little Potentially trunked. It's hard to confirm that. Yeah. Uh, but little, you know, hippo-esque thing. I so, say little. So South America's got its own version of hippos, mm-hmm. its own version of rhinos, mm-hmm. its own version of weird antelope type things. Yeah. It just, it's doing its own whole thing. So the only thing it's missing is something elephant-sized. Well, yeah, which obviously it just never got. Yeah. Uh, pyrotheria. Oh. Uh, large elephant-like mammals, as they were described. They were large, very taper-like again. Uh, five-toed feet, digitigrade, slender limbs, and only found in fossil sites older than 25 million years old, and only close up to that. So they... they Early Cenozoic. Early Cenozoic and medium range, so they're not as well-known, or a, a smaller range of time. Not as well-known as the others, but Pyrotherium got up to be 10 feet long, 5 feet tall at the shoulder, and 7,000 pounds for the estimate. So... They even had things that were this. You know, it's not quite as tall as our right elephant, approaching elephant size. But it's weight wise, it is a it's big it. herbivore. And once again, so like uh, South America just seems to be made for things shaped like tapirs. Yeah, apparently it's <laughs> just where where you where you do a taper thing. Yeah. So bunch of these kind of ungulate, kind of hoofed mammals, and then you even have non-therian mammals down there. So non-therians are those groups that include the monotremes mm-hmm. therians being marsupials and placentals so monotremes today are that third like all of the mammals weird cousins yep your platypus and echidna mm-hmm. which are egg-laying mammals that don't 
have proper lactation yep the way that right that that, that standard mammals do they're barely not reptiles yes <laughs> and Nowadays, only found in the Australia region of the world. So Australia, Tasmania, Kangaroo Island, and New Guinea. Mm -hmm. But at least one species made it to South America. Eh. Monotrematum subamericanum. So they even had one of the egg-laying weirdos Weird. for a time. Uh, another non-Therian they had that's unique to the southern continents was Gond Gondwana Thiers, which I just love that name. Yep. Uh, these were kind of gopher-esque, it seems. Very small, somewhat rodent-like, uh, with very tall teeth, you know, grinding teeth. But they're known from only the continents that were part of Gondwana and have been found in South America as well. Neat. Yeah. Lots of weird mammals. Lots of unique things. W once again, we could dive into these, you know, each group really could get its own attention. A couple groups that I we should point out is that somewhere in the middle of the Cenozoic to the late of the Cenozoic or somewhat, South America receives absolutely primates and rodents. Yes, what well, one article I, I was reading called "Lucky Arrivals." Yep, uh, we talked about this episode seven. We talked about mm -hmm. this. Ethan, New World monkeys. Yep, hop over to the Americas and caviamorph rodents. Yes. Which become your guinea pigs, New World porcupines, capybaras. Capybara, biggest rodents nowadays. Biggest rodents in the world. Those are branches of these groups that landed in, in South, and largely are South American groups today. And surprisingly enough, uh, do not seem like they came from North America, but Africa. Yep. Rafted across the oceans. Yeah. So even though it'll eventually connect with North America, its first f foreign invaders... We're from Africa who it used to be connected to. Across the sea. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah. It does also have notable uh, primates, things like the tamarins and marmosets, mm -hmm. uh, the spider monkeys and capuchins, both of which have those prehensile fifth limb tails. Yep. And then uh, the flat-nosed monkeys, uh, which I, I, I just love those. They're so weird. You get howler monkeys and a bunch of, like, tons of primates uh, that are notably different still from primates in Asia and Africa, because even though they came from Africa, they were isolated long enough to get weird and unique. Yep, whole new branch of like the primate tree. Some of them getting rid of their thumbs and stuff, which is, that's the first time I learned about that some spider monkeys got rid of their thumbs because it was easier to hook onto branches. <laughs> it's like, but that's... That's your thing. We gave you the primate member card because of that. So <laughs> <laughs> like all the tetrapods that lost their limbs. Yeah. What are you doing? I remember the first time I explained that <laughs> term of tetrapod to someone. They're like, but it means four limbs. Yes. Sure does. But they don't have those. Nope. Nope. You're right on track so far. Moving on. We also had bats show up in South America. Naturally. Very early on in their evolution. They still seem like they probably evolved originally in North America from the very sparse fossil record they have. Mm -hmm. But they've been in South America about as long. So South America is also riddled with bats and some unique bats yes they are they are very well known for certain members like vampire bats which are almost exclusively south american mm -hmm. which are one of my favorite south america's got a lot of i'm always accused of yeah. overusing my favorites but man south america hits <laughs> got a lot of cool stuff hits my check boxes and so this is bringing us though very rapidly toward more recent events because as i mentioned 
South America was isolated, but as we know now, it did not stay that way. No, it didn't. And so as we get toward the end of the Cenozoic, the connection, the land between North and South America begins to close as islands and uh, islands rise and sea levels fall until eventually there is a bridge. Which leads us to episode 43. Yes, it does. The Great American Biotic Interchange. So South America has been isolated, doing its own thing, all these cool animals, and one might wonder, well, but... But what about all of the cats and bears and elephants and tapirs? Tapirs are super famously South American Mm -hmm. now. Those are all North American things. Yes. And when the American biotic interchange happens, all those cool North American animals go south. A bunch of the South American stuff starts showing up in North America. Your sloths, your armadillos, your porcupines, uh, your possums, Mm -hmm. things like that. And this exchange also spells the end. For a lot of those cool South American forms. Yeah, unfortunately, placentals seem to, at that time especially, seem to be the the new hot thing and the way of the future and just out-compete consistently whenever they encounter the marsupial or other mammalian competitors. Yeah. And indeed, even placentals like the notoungulates mm-hmm. and, and the cool South American placentals North America has been connected to Asia for most of the Cenozoic, which means there is an enormous diversity of ecosystems and environments. And basically, you know, one of the things that happens when you're isolated is you are exposed to relatively few environmental pressures. So all these animals up in North America that had been exposed to all of this you know millions and millions of years of all sorts of migrations coming in and out things from from eurasia south america didn't have any of that so the north american stuff was probably better suited to change and putting up with new things and competition and competition so a lot of the cool south american stuff fades out Mm -hmm. uh when the gabby happens but we did a whole episode on the gabby go check out episode 43 i just thought of what might be one of my favorite metaphors I've come up with to explain uh, uh, connected landmasses versus isolated when it comes to this stuff. And it's online gaming in that North America was playing online with competitive ranked servers. South America was a private server. Yep. And anyone who's ever switched from private (laughs) to public knows that you immediately just get destroyed. Oh, yeah. Well, the North American (laughs) players have been playing the Korean players for like years and years and now... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you've gone from <laughs> playing the story mode to online and it's not the same. It's not the same. But still today South America holds on to a lot of its really unique cool stuff. And a, and a big part of that, a big part of what makes South America still unique today is its ridiculous amount of uh, or chances for biodiversity. It has ecosystems that hit just about every mark that any random animal could ask for. So there's a dry area, there's hot areas, there's cold areas. But then you also have these dense biodomes of the rainforest that just, there's enough room for every weirdo to find in a niche somewhere. Yeah. So it's still, still being weird today and awesome. And we're still finding new stuff in it all the time. Yeah, it's a cool place. It's so cool. Once again, if there's some part of South America that we just didn't get to, that you really wanted us to get to, Please make a request because we would love to come back. Oh yeah, to the America down south. As always, 
But before we wrap up the episode, a, a little tidbit of extra. So at the beginning, we shout out some patron names because they were at a certain level. If you're also at a certain level on Patreon, you can ask us questions that we answer here on the podcast. Sure do. So I have a question from one of our patrons. Oh, let's 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 hear it. Is it in a pirate voice? No. Oh, okay. Uh, could Ta- you? But you could read it in a pirate voice. Is that going to become the new thing? <laughs> no, I'm, no, no, no. Because no, I'm no, game no. for that. If you want your <laughs> patron question read in a pirate voice, you have to write it in pirate yes. speak. No, you have to do some work. We're not. Yeah, we're not <laughs> taking this away from our dread pirate. Because <laughs> I was about to say, if you, you better be careful what you <laughs> what you suggest. Because I was I was ready. We've opened the doors. This is going to be, it's going to get weird. Tom asks, why do ichthyosaurs not have a horizontal caudal fin a la dolphins, but rather a vertical one a la sharks slash fish, etc.? I assume it's to do with locomotion and thinking of lizards with the side to side action that would have been transferred but happy to be corrected slash educated. An excellent question. Yes, dear listeners, Baskin Coil, you may have noticed that aquatic mammals, dolphins, whales, and indeed pinnipeds like walruses and seals and such, have horizontally flattened tails that they move up and down while they swim, whereas almost all other aquatic animals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, have vertically flattened tails that they move side to side while they swim, including ichthyosaurs, episode 97. (laughs) And the reason for that discrepancy is mostly because mammals are weird. Yeah, yeah. So fish are the ancestral vertebrates. Yes. And fish swim side to side. Their bodies are built to swim side to side. Yeah, that's just, that's how fish started swimming back when they started swimming. And so every vertebrate inherited that, Mm -hmm. right? The slithering of a snake, the side to side of lizards and crocs. And so when those animals go back into the water or become aquatic, they still bend that way. Yeah, the body still moves Already that way. moving in that way most of the time, and it just transitions into paddling. So if you're an ichthyosaur or a mosasaur or a sea snake or a crocodilian, your tail flattens vertically, so it, it is tall and, and, and low, and you swish it side to side like a shark's tail. Mammals changed up the spinal arrangement. Yes, we did. In part, probably for uh, running and such. Yeah. Moving on land. uh, Mammals do a lot of crawling and a lot of burrowing and a lot of running and a lot of climbing. Well, and if you're you're moving fully within the the limits of gravity, up and down make more sense than side to side for moving quickly and efficiently. So if you picture, uh, if you've ever seen a, a documentary that shows you when cheetahs run. Yeah, and they fold up. And their body, their their back is like a, a spring mm-hmm. that's bouncing, not side to side, but up and down. I mean, uh, a great example for anyone to try at home is not that it everyone can just touch their toes, but it would be easier for me to ask you to stand up and reach forward to touch your toes <laughs> than to reach over to one side. Because t- our spine doesn't bend that way. The ribs get in the way. And so when mammals move back to the water, they tend to keep that up and down motion that you might use for running in their tails. Yeah. So dolphins have horizontally flattened tails side out they outside to side, as do pinnipeds and such. Yeah. You get, you get some weirdos. Like I know uh, there are seals that kind of flap their feet back and forth yes. versus flapping their tail. And there's the... Um, the nutria, if I'm right, that has the laterally flattened oh, tail okay. mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. waves it like a ribbon. And then you get weird things like the plesiosaurs and pliosaurs that... And sea turtles. Yeah, that don't use their tails at all. But yeah, yeah, for the most part, if you're a reptile, 
you keep the fish mode. If you're a mammal, you have to be weird. Yeah, it's one of my favorite. It's it's one of my favorite examples to use for how ancestry. Yes, is as important as function. Yes, that why do dolphins swim up and down? They don't have to. That's not better or worse mm-hmm. functionally than going side to side. They're mammals. Yeah. Same reason ostriches have hollow bones. Yes, exactly. Like, well, they're not flying with those hollow bones or with their feathers. Mm-hmm. They're birds. It's what they started the game with. There, it's, it's, there you go. Yeah. Ancestry. Yeah. Important. I, I so, remember... Tom, you are absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. That, On that's the mark. exactly what it is. On the mark. It's. I remember the first time I, I was making that distinction and I was trying to figure out if it was an efficiency thing. And I was looking stuff up and it was like, because dolphins typically are much faster than most other fishy type things. They're very agile and more, and maneuverable, but uh, there's lots of things of like efficiency that are better on the other side of things. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's very, it's just what the tools you were given. Great question, Tom. Very good question. Very observant question. And with that, we can wrap up this episode. South America. Cool continents. Done. Three continents done. Boom. I mean, we're like almost halfway through or something. And they, I think they are the three, well, says keeping Europe as its own, I guess, weird thing. Yeah. Because Europe is considered connected to Asia most of the time when you talk about biogeography. Yes. We've done the three smaller continents. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to say Eurasia. Yeah. And I just... I'm going to go, no, I'm sorry. I no, only sorry. deal in Gondwana. Can't. And <laughs> Eurasia. How could we even do... Uh, by all means, request Eurasia. Yep. Whatever you guys want to hear. Yep. <laughs> It'll be our first point five and point eight and Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, listeners, thanks for joining us on this, this trip through South America and its weirdness. If you have questions, let us know. Once again, share your favorite weird South American thing. Please do. If there's something you want to hear more of, as always, let us know. Find us on the social media. Send us an email. There will be a blog post going with this episode with lots of pictures and links. Check that out. Go check our social media for the questionnaire so that you can add your voice to the eventual Q&A we will be doing uh, for the end of the year. Please do. Thanks to our requesters and all of our patrons. How often do we release episodes? Fortnightly. Every fortnight. Yeah. We release new episodes. Se- 75's coming up. You know what that yeah. means, Baskin Coil. We're talking Extinction next episode. Yeah, it's Extinction. And we're and I we're three quarters of the way to 100. I, like, oh, yeah. How about we, that? We've hit another like chunk of percentage, which I love. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's cool. We'll see you then, everyone. I got nothing more to say. That's it. Have a happy day. I got nothing more to say. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.